Today I have uh, Dr. Andrew Kofke. Uh, Dr. Kofke has an Editor's Choice uh, article that is slated to be published in the no- November issue of JNIS. Uh, the title of the article is Anesthetic Variation and Potential Impact of Anesthetics Used During Endovascular Management of Acute Ischemic Stroke. Uh, Dr. Kofke is um, in the Department of Anesthesiology, Critical Care and Neurosurgery at um, the Perlman School of Medicine, University of uh, Pennsylvania. A- Andrew, um, uh, thank you for, so much for agreeing to uh, speak with me today. Yes, it's a, uh, a surprise and a pleasure to participate in this. <laughs> Would you be able to um, tell me a little bit about the design of the study, sort of the design, and, and summarize some of the pertinent results for me? The genesis of the study was spawned by our faculty reading reading articles about GA is bad for patients undergoing endovascular management of stroke and our stroke doctors telling us how to do our anesthetics. So that prompted a, retros- a retrospective uh, review of our of our practice to determine just what it was just a QI study and. Um, and I, I personally had always done these patients with TIVA, which is total intravenous anesthesia, propofol infusion types, types of things, because I thought that would be more neuroprotective. But um, the retrospective review of, uh, uh, of uh, modified Rankin scale and, and physiology and so on indicated that the physiology was this, the blood pressures were the same across, across types of anesthetics, which are TIVA, Tiva plus volatile anesthesia, which is a gas where you turn the turn the vaporizer up or down, or just uh, volatile anesthesia. Uh, you know, we very seldom do max on on these cases. Um, and and you know, so, looking across the types of general anesthetics, we saw a difference in the uh, retrospective analysis of MRS. Admittedly, taken off of the chart, so it's not. You know, the, the, the study's not perfect, but, um, but you know, we saw that the patients who had volatile anesthesia did, did better, which to me was personally a surprise. Now, you, you mentioned that this was sort of spawned by um, sort of discussions about what, what is currently in the literature. Um, can you tell me, you know, give me some insight about your feeling about where the literature is now and, you know, how we might in the future... Uh, try to uh, solve the riddle of whether whether it would be better to um, place these patients under general anesthesia or not. Well, I think that that it needs to be general anesthesia done by anesthesiologists who are, after all, trained to handle emergencies. Uh, you know, because we have a long history of taking care of people who are bleeding and trauma patients, and we get them to sleep quite fast. The second. Uh, point would be that we were uh, concerned that the um, uh, studies were, were uh, not done by anesthesiologists and, um, and they were controlling for severity of illness using NIH stroke scale, which is a neurologic measure, not a measure of systemic illness. So a patient could have congestive heart failure um, or active coronary ischemia, severe liver disease, none of that not, you know, these are enormous factors for determining whether to put someone due to a general anesthetic or not, and they're not included in, 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 the, in, the, correcting, in the scales that correct for um, severity. So the general 
um, notion of the anesthesiologist here, and I think everywhere, was, well, gee, the patients who get GA are sicker. Of course it's going to be worse because they're not protecting their airway. They're posterior strokes. They're, you know, they're larger strokes. They're, they're aphasic, and they're not cooperating, um, uh, things like that. So it seemed like it was a totally, um, a, a totally biased uh, uh, sort of analysis, the, uh, again, thus prompting this, this retrospective study. Uh, um, there's a couple of studies ongoing right now, and I'm not sure of all the details of them, but one is the SIESTA study, which is um, the preliminary results are presented at the Neurocritical Care um, Society by Schoenberger, S-C-H-O-E-N-B-E-R-G-E-R. And they, they actually, that was a nicely uh, designed study in the sense that it compared low-dose remifentanil propofol versus high-dose Remifentanil propofol. So they kept they kept it simple, so to speak, just looking at one set of anesthetic drugs, uh, finding really no difference between low dose and high dose uh, remifentanil and, uh, and and propofol. There's a Goliath study going on now, um, I think in Scandinavia, and there's one going on in China. So we'll see what they show. Uh, they should be coming out in the next six to twelve months. I I suppose. Uh, um, so a study needs to be one which controls for depth of anesthesia and perhaps using a BIS monitor or um, uh, there's pharmacokinetic simulators which can, which can estimate the blood concentrations of, uh, of anesthetics. They should be, and of course, randomized prospectively. Um, controlling for uh, anesthetic type or perhaps examining, as they say, the uh, conclusion of every retrospective study is a hypothesis for the prospective study to follow. So uh, it would control uh, examining the specific anesthetic types, um, you know, and controlling for pressure types, you know, alpha agents versus beta agents may have a big effect. If the blood-brain barrier is disrupted, the beta agonists may actually cause, you know, stimulate uh, brain metabolism. Uh, we need to, of course, measure the the, the door to needle times, which we didn't we did not measure in our study. We just looked at anesthesia records. Uh, and I think that it needs to be based on in-house anesthesia-trained teams so that there's some uniformity across across institutions from that perspective. Optimally, you'd measure CBF, and there's some devices out which can, which can do that, so you can note the time that uh, flow, is, flow is restored and what the blood pressure management was, and you know, maybe, maybe you get hyperemic with, without, you know, with a certain blood pressure. Uh, and, and you'd have to have some control, but without really testing for the effects of PCO2, blood pressure, and glucose, that probably would be a subsequent separate study. And then, of course, adverse outcomes need to be examined. Uh, looking at intraparenchymal hemorrhage as a function of uh, anesthetic type and blood pressure management, the incidence of aspiration pneumonia, and maybe even the need for decompressive hemicraniectomy afterwards um, would be important things to measure in a in a, in a, in a future study. Now, what I've just described is, you know, a mega study across many institutions, and uh, you know, no one's going to do it by themselves. It, it would, yeah, it would think, be an enormous societal effort. Right. I, I think what you're saying, which I, I totally agree with, is that we're making uh, assumptions based on, um, you know, large generalizations. Um, and in your opinion, uh, you know, these studies have to be um, a little bit tighter and, and a little bit more uh, well-defined as far as um, both, you know, outcome measures and also physiology during the procedure and um, types of anesthetic agents used. Is that, that's, that's pretty much what, what you're saying, right? 
Yes, yes. Uh, at least control control them uh, so that they're the same across instit- across the various sites that would be part of a study, which is a daunting challenge. I understand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The downfall of many and many multi institutional studies is trying to herd cats to do to treat people in the same way, with strongly held beliefs about. Uh, uh, let's just looking at thinking about PCO two. I mean, strongly held beliefs about how to manage that. One of the things that you mentioned, um, which is also true, is that a lot of the studies in the literature, they look at stroke severity, but really haven't looked at, um, you know, other um, health factors that may put patients at risk for anesthesia. In the real world setting, is there a a quick way to assess patients for uh, risk of anesthesia? And how, how do you typically do that? you know, at your institution in sort of uh, an emergency setting? At our institution and everywhere, the the American Society of Anesthesiologists, the ASA physical status scale is used. So one one through five, uh, one is totally healthy, two is mild systemic illness, three is systemic illness, which is disabling, and four is a life-threatening illness, and five is like almost brain dead. Um, Sort of a layman's way of describing the... uh, the, the the statuses. So you can see that they, they do describe the patient's general physical conditions, but it doesn't have the details which some of the other ICU scales might have, which I, I, I don't have the same sort of familiarity with them, but I know that there I know that there's lots of other ways to, to do them and I just would encourage the journals to um, encourage the people who are writing these studies to have uh, uh, proper scales that are used to correct for severity of illness. You know, one of the challenges, you know, in stroke is just um, sort of organizing your institution. Uh, We've been treating stroke here for a long uh, time, uh, you know, since the mid-90s, and and we still have challenges uh, organizing our own institution. Uh, How does anesthesia fit into the workflow of, um, you know, an acute uh, large vessel occlusion stroke that is, you know, going to the cath lab? Well, I'll tell you, I think that we're still learning, too. But in general, what happens is once it's clear that a patient is going to the cath lab, anesthesia is called and and the team is mobilized. We think that we should be called as soon as the stroke team knows that a patient is coming in and they haven't even decided to go to the stroke lab, but that's 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 still being uh, worked on. I mean, that's a good question. When do you notify the anesthesia team? Too many false, too many false calls will make for maybe a decrement in in responses, whereas too late of calls will make for uh, delays as they've got to they got to drop the drugs, they got to set everything up, check all the machines, you, you know, and evaluate the patient. You know, it isn't like um, you just you just order it from the pharmacy and suddenly you've got an anesthesiologist or, or, or rub the, rub the uh, what I like to say is rub the lantern and, and, and an anesthesia team appears. You know, so, so it requires some, some forethought in, in your institution. There's protocols that we're starting to work on based on this study. And actually, um, University of Washington, uh, a colleague of mine, Deepak Sharma, who's, who I know through SNAC, has, um, has, has sent us their their protocol, and we're, and we're going to massage it and, and make it for our, our own use, which will, will guide the, the team at night, because it's not a neuroanesthesia team. It's a general, a, a team of really good general uh, anesthesiologists who have a, a general understanding of stroke and neurophysiology, but they're not neuro-focused per se. Maybe about a third of them are. 
So that's why a protocol would be helpful. And no one's going to have a neuroanesthesia yeah. team in-house around the clock. No, I I think that's a safe bet um, to make. <laughs> um, is there anything else you wanted to talk about in closing? Yeah, yeah. There is one more thing I wanted to talk about. A MAC or are the sedation patients who are often in the control groups um, labeled as sedation. I know in my own personal experiences, they start out as a sedation, they start the procedure, and suddenly, well, now I don't have access to the airway. They started their procedure, and the patient's misbehaving. So what do I do? Well, I increase the dose of stuff. So next thing you know, I've got a non-intubated, essentially general anesthetic, and I'm holding the airway, putting a nasal airway in, trying to support, have the patient spontaneously breathe. So it's, so it's technically a non-intubated MAC, but in real life, it's a general anesthetic. So that's just another, another factor that, that none of these studies talk about. <laughs> Surely you've experienced that in your own practice. We actually try to limit even the, the, you know, IV sedation that we give, but you're right. I mean, depending on the situation and depending, you know, especially um, with right hemispheric strokes and uh, a lot of neglect, um, patients can be very, uh, you know, uncooperative for the procedure. Um, and, I, you know, I think the point that you're making is that if in the heat of battle, if, if you don't have experienced um, uh, anesthesiologists around, around, even if the patient isn't going to be intubated, it's important to know, uh, you know, the level of anesthetic that's being used and, and how that's affecting the patient's um, basic life <laughs> life support um, uh, issues that the patient has. Um, so I, I, I totally agree with you on that. So that was the one last last point. Andrew, thank you very much for agreeing to talk to me. It was a certainly exciting preliminary work, and, and I, I look forward to seeing more on this topic in the future from your group. 